A patter acknowledges the custodians and elders past, present and emerging of the land of which we work, practice, rehearse, perform and present across Australia. We pay respect to the cultural authority and traditions of the land. The First Peoples of this nation express their culture through music, dance and storytelling and it is our privilege to continue a tradition of storytelling and performance in this country. We acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first Australians and traditional custodians of the lands where we live, learn and work. Welcome to another Apata podcast. I'm Jason Raft from JLX Productions and Iceworks Design, and today we're talking to Richard Fab, who's the creative director at Live Lab and senior lecturer at Griffith Film School. Hello, Richard. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Uh, very much a pleasure. Um, for the nature of these podcasts, we like to learn about you, the person, and then into uh, the work that you do. So let's start right at the beginning. Where did you go to school? Uh, well, I'm I'm a pom dual national, but I guess I'm a POM, um, originally a POM at least, um, and I went to school in southern England in a small village originally, so I grew up in a village, went to the local primary school, then went to the local state secondary school, high school. Um, uh, so that was it, that was my sort of fairly standard, you know, start educational up. start, and they were both, you know, really happy experiences. Uh, I loved school, I uh, loved my primary school particularly, was distraught when I had to leave it. Um, <laughs> But I also did a – obviously the system is different there to here. So at 16, I actually left my school because that's when everyone left. Uh, and I went on to do equivalent of grade 11 and 12, so my A-levels at a college. Okay. Um, which was really interesting experience because it was much more like uni. Um, no uniform, first name terms with staff. You did three subjects only. Oh, wow. So you specialised quite a lot, so grade 11 and 12. Uh, and I ended up studying English, communications and theatre studies. Um, so – yeah, and it was a really good sort of ease, eases you into uni, and I think that's really interesting because uni can be a real jump for a lot of people at 18. Mm. So I had a, a, a two-year warm-up, I suppose. Just to get ready and prepare. Yeah, yeah. So during that time, was there a, a focus on a direction you wanted to go or was it just you were experiencing as much as you could? When I, well, the, the, the first and, in a sense, only thing I wanted to do for many years was be an actor, and that was probably from primary school days. Um, I got involved with local amateur dramatics, back end of a pantomime horse or front end of a pantomime <laughs> horse even. Um, but also the village I lived in, um, if you know the film The Omen, uh, I don't know if you know, yeah, so yeah. they filmed some of The Omen in the village. Um, oh, wow. um, so that closing scene, if you know The Omen, where he, the kid turns and grins at the camera, it's a, in a cemetery. That was just across from where I lived. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, so Gregory Peck was in town. It was a big thing. And I think there was lots of sense of excitement around that. And... Um, yeah, and I, I knew I wanted to be involved in that, that world, I think. Um, like one of my earliest film memories is going to see Bugsy Malone when it came out. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, obviously, Alan Parker movie. sadly died recently. But, you know, the, and this film school has a strong connection with David Putnam. And, you know, I've been able to meet David here. But David came and spoke to us when I was at uni in our finishing year. Oh, wow. So I have very f- strong connection to Bugsy Malone. For a number of reasons, but it was the first time I went to a f- see a film at the cinema and came out and thought, "I that, want whatever that is." Absolutely, 
That's amazing. And, and the acting started. It's amazing how many of us, because again, I started doing acting in school before I realised the crew were having more fun. Yeah. But it's amazing how many of us get to that point where you go, maybe that's not necessarily the path I can go down and, and uh, follow. So during that early time when you were moving, especially the, obviously the 11 and 12 years, which seemed to be pretty formative for you, were there teachers or mentors or your parents or someone within that that were a really good mentor and starting to push you in a path where you ended up following further into your career? Um, Absolutely. And I think most people probably, if you trace it back, have those people somewhere along the line. It might be one, it might be several. And I always had, like, my home life, um, my mum and dad were always just really supportive. Um, None of that parental pressure, which is I know lots of kids do have that awful parental pressure. My mum and dad were always keen for me to just do what I wanted to do. And whatever I wanted to do, they supported it. So that was always a good background, I think. Um, and particularly in creative arts, I know you can often see kids who, who don't have that. Yeah, and, it's a, and, it's a, and it's a door they have to push out a lot. Um, but, uh, you know, I had a... So I studied theatre at school, which then, you know, you're talking late 70s, early 80s in the UK, was, uh, it was an emerging subject at school to be to be you know formally studied and I suspect that was probably similar here in Australia mm. so it was yeah, a new thing so. then very much a new thing and you know my my drama teacher you know Mr Fallon Bernard Fallon was I just remember this incredible enthusiasm absolute passion it took us to the theatre and you know it was it was my favourite subject and and then yeah when I went to college and did sort of I did theatre studies A level at grade 11 and 12 a guy called Jonathan Holloway was you know, in some ways, one of the most formative sort of teaching experiences I had as a as a young person. Uh, and you know, yes, he was enthusiastic, but actually, there was a for me, like I went in there wanting to be the actor. So I'd been wanting to be an actor since I was old enough to want to do anything, mm-hmm. and not because he crushed any ambitions, but he was he really got us to think about it. And I think I hit a point studying under him where I thought, you know, I, I'm not actually that. I'm not good enough, I don't think. And that wasn't being negative mm. uh, because I then fell in love with the idea of directing um, and I realised that was what I, in fact, wanted to do. And like you said, it's more fun, more interesting in a way, um, for me at least. Um, so that was a key thing because that's when I shifted, um, you know, from, from wanting to act to wanting to be sort of behind... This was theatre, so yeah. camera or behind the production. Um, so that was pivotal. And then when I went to uni... A uh, guy called Ted Braun, who was the head of the drama department at this was Bristol University in England. Uh, like I didn't get my grades, so when I finished grade twelve, I didn't get the grades to get in. Oh wow! And you know, tip, I'm suspect that's similar here. I don't know if you face retakes, but back then, you know, you didn't get the grades. Typically, you'd have to retake. Yes, yeah, uh, I, I I left early and started working and didn't even follow the path. So right. yeah, I, it was d- very different. Yeah, element, but yeah, uh, and I was listen. This was new. I I was kind of I'm first in family at uni, um, so this was all new. I had nothing to base it on, mm. um, but and I can remember the reason why Ted stands out for me still is that um, I think I was you know disappointed I didn't get my grades, but I then thought okay I've got to retake, and I started to, and this was retaking English. I'd got a good grade in, in theatre studies, but I needed a better grade in English. And I just thought, I cannot face a year just repeating. It just, I can't do this. Yeah, yeah. And I remember I got in the car and I drove to Bristol, sort of unannounced, asked to see him and, and pleaded my case. And, you know, and I don't know if this could happen now, but he said, and he, he heard me out. And basically what I had to do was he said, 
you know, I can get a couple of references, which I did from people I'd worked with. And, I'm, you know, those were people I'd been doing sort of... Uh, so one of them was Jonathan, one of my teachers, but he had a theatre company, so there was a sort of professional dimension to that as well. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they, they wrote me glowing references, and I got in. Wow. So I sort of... I still had a year off because I was too late to come in, and I value that year off, actually. But, um, uh, yeah, I just... I. I feel I don't feel like I cheated, but I sort of, you know, I went round the system yeah. a bit because the system said you got to reset, you need the grade, uh, and I'm you know always will be grateful to Ted for kind of being flexible. But also, you from obviously coming out of college and into uni, the confidence had been built in you and the way you were looking at how things would work for you moving forward. A little bit of graft, I don't think, hurts anyone, especially in the industry that we work within. But it's that confidence that was obviously built in where you were going and what you wanted to do to be able to give you that ability to stand up and go, here's my case, this is what I want to do. Yeah, and I was by that point, you know, I'd looked at, I'd been for interviews at four unis, all quite different, but Bristol was where I wanted to go. It was the place, and at the time it was seen as the sort of the best. Um, in the UK it was the first, again, like the first uni to teach drama as an academic subject, sort of set up back in the 50s. Before that it, just, it wasn't a thing mm. to study. No one studied it. Um, so, you know, I really had my heart set on that place. So, and you know, I was thinking I've become a producer later on in life, and that's a good producer quality—not taking no and pushing a little bit—and absolutely um, finding the ways to communicate your, your point and get it done. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. No, just, just pushing a little bit, at least. Yeah. And it's something important for students today to to listen to and understand that sometimes coming into an industry, it's not always about the marks; it's about the person. And if there's the capability there, trust yourself, talk to people, connect. Like the references you got, you know, people will see in you what we're worthwhile in the industry and have the willingness to put yourself forward, not just because of a, a number on a piece of paper. There is always an option. Absolutely. And we're seeing this now in, in COVID with the, you know, there's in the UK there's a whole kind of exams fiasco with kids in that grade 12 position this year. And obviously it's a challenge for students in Australia this year when they'll you know, how are they going to get into uni for next year when this year's been so disrupted? Um, and it's, you know, not to say exams don't have value, not knocking the exam system, but when so much of a person's future life journey hangs on that one thing, mm-hmm. it's like there's, on a certain level, there's an absurdity to that. Yeah, that that's absolutely. the one measure that gets you through or not. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So going through university uh, and obviously starting to look into your first steps out into the industry, how did that transition work? Um uh, going to university, sorry. Yeah, going to and then moving through to you know, where you first started working. Yeah, well, uni, you know, and you know, I, the thing that I take from all that uni experience and then the period particularly afterwards is that um, for me, and I see this in lots of students I work with now and recent graduates, is of course nothing's fixed. Whatever you thought you wanted to do at 15 may not be where you want to be when you're 18 and where you want to be at 18 is perhaps not where you end up at 22 and... So there's always that, for a lot of people at least, I think there's that flux. Occasionally you get the one person that says, I will be this, and that's what they become, and that's all they are, you yeah. know. So that's, that's rarer even these days. So, yeah, and for me certainly, so I, you know, I'd had that experience of wanting to be an actor, 16, 17, that shifted. Um, you know, I'd ha- and I had great experiences, so working with this guy, Jonathan, so I was doing my grade 11, grade 12 theatre studies, he was running a production company, theatre production company on the side as well as being a teacher. And, you know, he took us to the Edinburgh Festival. You know, he, he had a show on at Edinburgh. We had a student show under him 
in the same venue. I went to Edinburgh twice. I went back the following year as a director. Um, you know, so I had those kind of formative experiences. And I went into... To, but by the time... I think that year out was critical for me again because in, in that year out I made a film, or worked, worked on a film, I should say, with a friend of mine, which was a sort of 16mm, 15-minute short... You know, but it had a broadcast screening. It was, you know, it's a World War One drama. It was a lot of fun. We were digging trenches and making it look like, you know, Flanders. And, um, you know, so I'd, I'd got the film bug by then. And by the time I ended up at university, having thought I would go there for the theatre, my focus shifted to, to film and television. Uh, so, again, a big transition going into uni. And, you know, the, the course was great because it was a drama degree, but you could specialise in either theatre or film and TV. It had a really good, fantastic TV studio. Um, you know, people were still shooting in those days on 16mm. Oh, wow. um, it was early tape days, so we were shooting on, you know, BVU, Porter Packs, and then even on VHS, which was shocking, but <laughs> <laughs> early tape, earlier tape days. And, yeah. Um, you know, so I went through uni, really, and did bits of theatre still. Loved theatre, I guess, but I was... Uh, and, and the journey through uni cemented my kind of love for film and television and that was my focus through the degree so when I left it was you know I see this in lots of our students now I wanted to be a director and I left uni thinking that's that's what I'm going to be um and that period out of coming out of uni is a is a critical one because um you know and again I see it with so many students you you've gone through your uni experience you know and your uni experience sort of validates you I am this thing at uni you come out of uni and you're not you're Mm. you're just yourself again. Yeah, it's absolutely. like you're back into civilian life. And you have to... It's, it's hard to keep that momentum. And, you know, then real life kicks in. I was, I was married very young. I had a kid. Um, and suddenly, you know, the idea of being a struggling early 20s, you know, artist wasn't compatible with those responsibilities. And it's like we've got to get a job. And, and I spent, you know... Best part of a year, I did odd jobs. I worked, um, did the box office at a cinema. You know, wasn't earning very much money. You know, so for the best part of a year, I didn't do anything, if you like, in the industry. It was mm. just, you know... Um, paying the bills. Kind of paying the bills. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, as I said, I'm always conscious of that, how that journey shifts from for an awful lot of people and some of that is absolutely where you want to go and your dreams and ambitions and there's always that element of circumstance serendipity you know bit of luck yeah absolutely um but but during that during that year how did you keep your focus on where you wanted to go because obviously you know life's happening around you kid etc etc how did you maintain the the focus on where you were wanting to end up uh, it's inter- that's an interesting question because I, if I think back, I'm not sure necessarily I did um, oh, that well. You know, you, well, yes, I mean, I didn't just say, well, I'm not going to do these things, yeah. but you know, and you're trawling the jobs pages. Bearing in mind, this is a this is this is an age before any kind of the internet didn't exist, no mm. social media. You know, it was a world where it was like, you know, there was cinema and television, not much else. Mm. Um, and your pathways into the industry certainly then were, you know, people might look back and say, well, there was more opportunity then, but it was actually, I think, also much harder to break through because it was, you know, the industry was, you know, it was kind of the, only the, the 
the big end of town for the industry. There was not this sort of groundswell of, you know, yeah, and people were making shorts, of course, still and doing whatever they did. But it was it was harder to get in, I think. Mm. Um, but I'd have been, you know, I'd have trawled the jobs pages, put in applications, um, you know, and it and it's all and it, I think it's always been the case. It take it can take time, and that's mm. what I'd say to a student now as well is, you know, if you don't leave and some amazing thing doesn't happen to you, don't be downhearted because. It's that's the nature. That's always been the nature of our industry. Absolutely, you, know, you might get a one of those graduate. The BBC's always run a graduate production scheme, for like four people or whatever. Um, so those things have always existed. But it's I think the process, even in today's sort of modern age, some of the basic fundamentals in terms of how you make that transition, still ultimately the same. Mm. But I think, like you said, it's the patience and willingness to, to back yourself. And, and if it means you need to scrap around to do a lot of other things, still maintain that ability to understand that you keep looking, keep seeking. You know, For me, it was the same. You know, you're know, you pushing out into an industry. Again, I'll just reiterate the point. There was no internet. Yes, yeah. yes Richard and I are both old. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that thing of understanding that a lot of that was done off your own back and being able to push forward without the attachment to the information available to you and where things were going. And obviously now there's so much more content being produced and probably so many more opportunities for people to find different areas to integrate into the industry, whether it's all, you know, all the independent films plus obviously the television production mm-hmm. and everything else that's going on. Um, so, as you were coming through that year, what was it that broke you back in? Where did that transition happen? Well, there was one, you know, and again, I'd say very much this is the sort of circumstance or luck factor. I mean, I'd done, you know, and I'd done interesting stuff at uni, which when I think now what I sort of teach, I suppose, like I'd done all the right things. I'd done, like my first ever paid job was at uni, um, in the industry that is. Obviously, I, I did cafe work and bar work while I was a student, but... My and one of my lecturers had a production company, and my first paid job was a was a day's work as a runner on a corporate gig. Um, but I st- and I remember it so clearly. It was the longest day I'd ever worked, but I got sixty sixty pounds, sixty British pounds, which is what you know, it's roughly say one hundred and twenty plus dollars, mm. which in nineteen eighty seven or whatever it was was a lot. You know, it's a lot of money. I think my cafe job probably on a Saturday paid me ten ten pounds. So that was a lot of money, and it was the most fun I'd had because, um, you know, and this was an interesting, given that I focus a lot on sort of corporate production for student work, this was a corporate gig. Uh, it was an internal training or information film for an insurance firm that was changing its name purely for staff to say, this is why we're changing the name. But they hired this guy called Rory Bremner, who is a really famous impressionist in the UK, so he does all the politicians yep. and celebrities. He's great with his voice incredibly funny and he was probably almost at the height of his fame then and they hired him and he was running around this company doing all his characters explaining it so I was hired as a runner and when I rocked up they said well actually we need two people to play his dummy crew so I ended up being the dummy sound recordist and running around after him you know pretending to record sound it was like a mockumentary style sort of thing and so that you know I'd done things like that I'd made a music video with again a staff member at uni who, who got the gig to do this music video, which was on MTV, MTV being in its early days then as well. So I, I left uni, you know, and I'd say I look back at my CV then, and I, you know, so I got a music video, um, I'd done a film that was on TV, um, done this corporate gig with Rory Bremner, which, you know, so all those things were good. Yeah. But uh, that still 
no guarantee of taking you anywhere. Never is. Hmm. Um, and I started... So I got a job with a company called ITN, Independent Television News, which is the UK's major in sort of independent commercial broadcaster. Mm-hmm. So the equivalent of like 7, 9 and 10 here. And I guess the main commercial rival to the BBC. And my dad had a shop and one of his customers was a sound engineer at ITN. And they were chatting and my dad said, oh, my son wants to work in TV. And this guy said, oh, well, they're looking for young people. Go and see this person. So I literally... And I'm trying to remember whether I contacted or I think I just rocked up. Again, pre-internet. Yeah. I actually went to the office and said, can I speak to this guy, Laurie something? I can't even remember his surname, but I remember it was Laurie. Uh, and he said, okay. And I, he saw me, said, come back next week for an interview. I went back for an interview the following week and I got the job. Wow. And so that's how I got into television formally. And, um, you know, and I see that again with a lot of students now. There's often... It might be a family member or a next-door neighbour or a friend of your mum or dad or an auntie or an uncle or something. And I always say, well, you know, milk those opportunities because it is, as we all know, and it's still a truism that it's a, it's a relationship-based industry, word of mouth, and, you know, so many of your opportunities will come through channels like that rather than, you know, as an advert in the paper or mm. a jobs page. Um, which is still, you know, they do happen, but so much of it is not through that pathway. Absolutely. But it's, a, it's also that thing of you, again, for, for a second time, taking yourself and making that physical connection to the person. So many times now, like, you know, for us, we see a lot of people just will send an email. And I'm a person that needs to talk to people. I'm, you know, I'm a hugger. I'm a, you know, can't do it anymore in COVID. But that personal connection helps you understand the person and puts you in a place to know whether I can look in your eyes and see if you're passionate about the thing you want to do and you're going to add value to the thing that we're doing here. Now the students that seem to come out, a lot of them don't have that understanding that even though you can simply send an email or an SMS or a messenger message or whatever it might be, that personal connection with an employer or anyone is super important as the first port of call yeah and i could you know and i i can remember like in today i mean if i'd have sent laurie an email maybe it would have sat unread in his inbox but you know i rocked up at the reception said can i speak look to this guy laurie um uh and it was interesting because you know you go into the reception for this for itn and you know if, if you're there for 10 minutes you're going to see some famous people coming in and out because whether it was the presenters or guests would come in to be interviewed. And there was abs- – I, I remember walking away from that absolutely feeling this buzz of excitement because of – you know, that wasn't like starstruck as such, but there was a sense, there was an energy mm. around that. Um, and it's interesting because I – you know, my interview was for a job, I guess, for a news um, broadcaster. Um, I studied drama. I didn't study journalism. But they needed people who were switched on a new kind of what was going on in the world. And, you know, I just, I guess I'm fortunate here in that I'd always been interested in kind of current events. I always read a newspaper. Um, and, I, and I knew what was going on. So I could, they asked me questions about, you know, I don't know what, Gorbachev or something then. Um, and I was able to hold my own and, and you know, answer those questions. Mm. They wanted people who understood that world at least. Who weren't? Who wouldn't? You know, you know, who's the prime minister? Who's the president of the United States? Who's whatever? Yeah. Um, you know, and that was important. And I started there in 1989, and it was. Uh, I imagined I'd be there six months. 
That was my plan. I had a plan. I thought, well, this will be a good, it's a permanent job, a bit more money. Um, I want to be a director still, but editing is a, a useful allied skill, so I'll, I'll focus on editing. So it was all a production focus. Mm. So I didn't see it as any way stepping into a world of journalism because I'd, I'd just done a drama degree. I wasn't into journalism. Yep. Uh, I didn't study journalism. Um, but, you know, I was there for 11 years in the end. <laughs> So, you know, talk more about how those things, how that journey, you know, you, you hit a path on the road and it takes you somewhere else. And um, so that, but, you know, I started there. A week later, Tiananmen Square happened. Um, this was 1989. The Berlin Wall came down. Um, Nelson Mandela was then released. For like 18 months, it felt like there were these epoch-making, like mm. history-in-the-making events. And, you know... We can often feel like those are happening all the time these days, <laughs> with whether it's Brexit or you know Trump or whatever it might be, or climate change now or the pandemic or whatever it is. But yeah, they felt like they were moments where things that had been in place for decades mm. were shifting. Uh, so it was a pretty interesting time to work in television news then. Yeah, and you at that right point where you're willing to just have all the input that you can possibly get to learn as many things and yeah. obviously the people around you, and again, it's similar for us, as soon as you're in that case where people are producing a big show or dealing with a big news event, there's a lot of buzz, there's a lot of hum, there's a lot of people willing to, we all need to get onto this, we all need to partake in making those things happen. So it's an amazing experience. Totally. And, you know, and I'd, I'd come out of my degree with a focus on film and television and a lot of television again we you know we had a fantastic small but beautifully equipped tv studio and i had been trained in every single studio role we did that and something i introduced here when i was teaching started teaching television studio courses at griffith you know the importance of doing every role to get a taster to know what you might be good at or what you like most mm. and um you know so stepping it was a albeit a news environment you know, it's live television every day. You had to step into a TV studio, deal with camera operators, go into a control room every day, go into master control every day, go into edit suites every day. You know, and you might be based in a newsroom, which was full of journos, but the, the guts of that thing was a television show. Yeah, you're integrated um, in every way. Totally. And again, that, you know, I've met lots of people over the years who've had a, their start has been in, in news, in TV news particularly, and I would still... I would still honestly say I think it's a fantastic grounding because you d- you do have to cover so much. In production, you know, I started as a runner and I knew more stuff than some people who worked in specialist areas, you know, because I had to. I had to know the sound people. I mm. had to know graphics team. Um, you know, in graphics in those days, it was about going in and getting a slide and getting it put under a camera and, you know, so all that stuff. Where it's all, that's changed so much. But, you know, but I knew everyone, you know, mm. because that was my job. Uh, but it gave me a great grounding and also news generally you're making stuff you have to be accurate you have to be fast yeah yeah absolutely so as you're coming through through that how did you go from that news environment and then obviously eventually move into some sort of educational role how did that work when you left there and and moved to where we are now well you know as I said so I I thought I'd be there six months and I ended up being there for 11 years (laughs) which was um and you know, so I guess at some point, pretty soon, my my the, the dreams I'd had of being a like a film director out of uni dropped off. And actually, I loved what I did. As I said, I'd always been interested, so it didn't feel like uh, a particularly big transition to realise that I loved what I was doing. And I think I could recognise there was something. It, it was a full time job for sure, and my my pay started going up, so that was quite nice. 
but I just, you know, I, it was a really exciting time, as I said, to be there. I loved what I did. And I ended up shifting. So ITN produces is a news provider, but it makes shows for different channels. And I ended up working on a show called Channel 4 News, which is Channel 4 is one of the other main UK broadcasters and does an hour-long in-depth news show every night. And most of that 11 years was spent on Channel 4 News. And so I transitioned, in fact, to more into the journalism side. I ended up becoming a news producer. I was a, a foreign desk editor, so I dealt with input and output and everything. And again, had that great grounding, so I travelled a lot. You know, and as a producer, you're, um, you know, you're really producer-director in, in the UK. The UK has that tradition of in television of producer-directors as well, which is, I guess, where I came from when I certainly came to Australia, where it's demarcated a bit more still yeah. here. Um, but, you know, you're, you're doing everything from setting projects up, dealing with logistics, booking crews, doing money, but writing scripts, commissioning graphics, directing field crews, directing edits, um, doing interviews, all that sort of stuff. So you cover, again, everything. everything. And I, you know, and I, in time I moved into a more of a sort of senior editorial role on the journo side, actually, which as a, as a quick sidebar, like when I started... One of the barriers I'd say, and this is, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the importance of unions, but there were lots of restrictive practices then to the point where I started, you were either in production or you're a journalist, and they were two different worlds, and you were not allowed to cross. So a journo could not touch a mixing desk or hold a camera, or, and equally production people, you, you know, it was assumed that production people probably didn't have the nous or whatever to be a journal either. So mm. it worked both ways. Yeah. And whilst there were good, some aspects of that were about protecting people's jobs, which is an important thing. Ultimately, creatively, those restrictive practices, I don't think probably help no. or helped. Um, you know, and, and in my time there, that changed. And there, there are some negative aspects of that in terms of people's jobs and, and people lost their jobs um, but shaking things up to the point so when I left by the time I left and I was a journo at that point they were transitioning to a, a sort of desk-based editing system where journos could cut pictures you know mm. work with to, to put editor's job basically and I was the first person to cut a little piece on that system that went to air as a journo you know so I think um, those that um, my time there. By the time I was leaving, you know, I'd got to do. I was uh, I was on the journo side, but you know, I, I, I saw myself very much as a producer. I think, um, and you know, I've still got friends who are still there, and I, it's nineteen years now, almost since I left. And but I think I hit a point where I thought, and I was by then into my thirties, and I thought, is this? Is this all? Well, you know, is this all I'm going to do? I could have stayed. I had a. It was a secure job. Pay was pretty good. Blah blah blah. I could have stayed there until I retired, and people do, and that's great. I think I felt, as a TV person, that that I, I wanted to make other kinds of shows. Um, I guess I got slightly itchy feet. It helped that they offered a voluntary redundancy program, <laughs> so I wasn't that brave. I suppose I didn't just go out and and, and quit. Um, I went with a little bit of cushioning, but there, you know that transition was still rocky at times, and there mm. were moments I think where I probably regretted it. But 
Um, ultimately, I don't. It was the right decision, but I left. So that was the transition out of working for a news organisation into making other kinds of TV. So I did, and I made documentaries and did sort of some chat formats and and other things. Um, and it, for me, education didn't really didn't come up onto my radar personally until I was well embedded here in Australia. So, so ultimately, what happened to get me there was, uh, you know, I relocated. I moved from England to Australia about sort of 11, 12 years ago now. Um, and, and again, there's a transition there because I moved here with this sort of news background. And in, and in the UK, you get pigeonholed a lot more. Mm. It's a bigger industry. There are more opportunities, but it's more competitive and it's very hard to move around. So the, the liberating thing for me coming to Australia was, you know, and I did come here and I worked on a show called Insight at SBS, which was a, you know, current affairs talk show basically you know discussion show and that was the sort of natural transition and I was very lucky I got that job pretty much on arrival Um, but you know I moved from that to do comedy shows entertainment formats which I don't think in all honesty I'd have been able to do in in England just through the pigeonholing and uh, I think the Australian industry seemed to me less pigeonholed. Um, they didn't. They kind of. It felt to me my my experience was that people would look at you again and say, "Well, what what skills have you got? Mm. Sure, you've been you've been making kind of new shows and current affairs documentaries, but what else? You, st- you still know how how shows are made and well, you know, so um, yeah. Anyway, for that's what I ended up doing. Uh, I did a show called Hungry Beast for the ABC, which was my next gig, and that unlocked a lot of things because there was although I didn't specifically produce the comedy within that show there were comedy elements within that show and I got to do um show called Balls of Steel you know <laughs> and show called Full Brazilian so I did comedy formats as well mm. um as well as doing some factual shows um that's a big step from the news and it is a big step from the news you know I, I, there was one point um I found myself on a doing a scene on Balls of Steel, you know, and if anyone knows that shows, it was, you know, it could be a little raw in places, maybe whatever the phrase <laughs> yes, would be. But, yes, it could. you know, I thought this is a long way from, you know, I've inter- interviewed presidents and here I am doing this show <laughs> where, you know, there was some nudity and whatever. It was just, it was, um, uh, it felt like a long way from what I, where I started. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, so and I guess coming back to your question, how did I move into education? For me, um, in, and I, in Australia, I moved here and I was a freelancing producer initially in Sydney. Uh, you know, and that was great. I had a really great time. Um, but, you know, I think, again, you hit certain points in your life. I think, and I was freelance for maybe a good, a good decade or so. So I'd had a long time being freelance. Um, so I think, you know, I can legitimately say I understand that life. And that's where most of our students will end up initially at least, mm. if not forever. Um, so I understand how precarious that can be and how hard it can be to keep things ticking over and you're always hunting for the next job. And I think I wanted partly, you know, I think in all honesty, there was a part of me that wanted to stop having to constantly chase. Mm. Um, but I also think, you know, I did hit a point as well where I felt I'd been doing this by, by that point I don't know, long 15 years or whatever it might have been. And again, I think asking those questions, is this it? You know, I'm a jobbing producer. I know how to make TV shows. They're all interesting. Everyone's different to the next one. So it's not like it wasn't boredom because everything, there's always a sort of degree of freshness about a project. Yeah. 
you're always working with different people, different companies. Um, so it wasn't that it lacked variety, but I think for me, um, there was definitely something about teaching that I felt, uh, you know, maybe there are things that I'm good at as well, you know. So I knew I was a quite good pr- producer, you know, without blowing my own trumpet. I'd had a s- successful career producing TV. Um, you know, I'd also, you know, I had, I had sort of side interest in a personal capacity in mental health. You know, I did some volunteering in the UK around mental health, so that was a personal interest. And I think, you know, I was... Um, there was something in teaching, again, that I think spoke to something maybe in me that I could do that didn't completely step away necessarily from what I'd done, but was an extension... You know, and at one point I did explore going into teaching in sort of school level. Mm. Um, and that was a thought. There was a thought to return to the UK at one point. And, I, you know, I went and did some teaching experience in schools. So I dipped my toe in the water there. You know, I guess I wanted to know, is this just a fanciful idea or could I hack it? Um, and I did that. And that was interest, cause, interesting because I think it, it told me that maybe as much as I liked parts of that, maybe school, you know, what's the right age group for you as a teacher? Mm. You know, we all know there are great teachers for prep kids or great teachers for grade 12s who are probably not as best for prep kids. And every child is different, you know, at different stages. So there are alignments and and what you teach and how you teach a five-year-old is perhaps different in some ways to how you teach a 16-year-old and then to to a young adult as well. Um, so I explored that. I'd also, um, at one point in my life, I had done a... I, I got qualified to, to teach English as a second language. So I did the sort of... It was a, called a CELTA course, but like a TESOL course. Uh, and that was my only, at one point, only formal teaching qualification, but I had done it. It was a four-week intensive, about the most f- intensive four weeks I think I've ever spent yeah, wow. doing that. And um, I actually studied it in Germany with some, nat- with some German speakers, and it's interesting because native English speakers often, certainly from the UK, and certainly from my generation, um, where we were never taught grammar. There, there was a shift in the 70s when no one taught grammar, or man, that wasn't important. Um, you know, you're a native speaker and a good native speaker, but you often don't understand how your own language works. So that was an interesting experience. Mm. Um, but, you know, and that introduced me to the idea of planning lessons and thinking about you know, how you teach and methods for teaching, methods for learning. Um, so it covered a huge amount of ground in four weeks. And I left with a qualification. And I, at one point I thought, well, maybe maybe teaching English will be either a, a, a thing I move into or as a parallel thing in TV still. So what's the transitioning going on? And I guess uh, to sort of round it off more is, you know, so I was sitting here in Sydney and I think I knew the sort of, Probably for me, the step was to take what I knew, which was film and television, and, and extend that into a, perhaps a teaching career. So I started looking around, um, and you know there are. You know, I have a honours degree from the UK, but that's it. I don't have masters. I don't have a higher degree, and I certainly a lot of lot of universities will not look at you mm. without that. Um, so that's a challenge if you want to go into teaching, and this that's. What's interesting about this is that, you know, if you want to teach kids, you have to go and train. You know, no one will let you teach a child without some formal qualification. Mm. You know, and in the UK, you could do a postgraduate transition year, 
like a you would do it on the job training, but you would do a year. You had to do that at least before you could teach mm. kids. You know, you can teach at a university without <laughs> any qualification. Um, although, you know, your your area of specialisation, I guess, is assumed to be important enough that somehow you can do that. But yeah. you know, um, and I, you know, scouted around. I I looked at a job. UQ were advertising a job and I knew I wanted to move to Queensland so the reason I'm here in Queensland is because I was living in Sydney family reasons Queensland Brisbane was the place and I've been coming to Brisbane I had been coming to Brisbane for years always liked it always Mm. preferred it to Sydney um so that we'd identified or I'd identified and the family had identified Brisbane as somewhere maybe to look at um tried the University of Queensland no higher degree won't touch you spoke to QUT and there was some support but it was still a question mark you know and a mm. job came up there so try um, it's possible but the higher degree is an issue and I did apply I didn't get an interview um, uh, and I'd been speak I came and speak spoke to, to the film school at Griffith and Herman van Eyken who's the the director of the film school was very supportive and encouraging. And and it started basically a discussion that went on for a year or eighteen months, um, and in a sense, until the position that I'm now in, which is the director of Live Lab, was advertised. And it's not that it was; I don't think it was created for me, but Herman and I had been talking. And in a sense, the role like Live Lab was set up about 2010, so it's about ten years old now, by Herman. Uh, and as often the case, these things you know things are set up will do it one of my colleagues was running it but you know it was a sort of add-on um so i think they identified a need for someone to come and run this thing and i think i was fortunate both that griffith was able to see past that higher degree barrier Mm. recognize what i brought coming from that point like 25 years in industry um and the value of that to that particular thing so my role is quite unique Mm quite unique you can never be quite unique it's a unique role i think in the sense that uh, to the best of our knowledge no other uni in the country has it has anything like this um in terms of a full-time year-round commercial quasi commercial studio doing work if you like out in the community Mm. you know external partners external projects where students get to work so that's that's my role it's an academic role i'm a senior lecturer at the at the film school but um, uh, so that's how I ended up there, and it's you know I think I lucked out in some ways, and um, it is hard for someone without a higher degree to move into uni education unless you're you're working casually. So there's this weird sort of discrepancy Crossover. where if you're a full time member of staff, you've got to have a PhD or a doctorate. Mm. Um, a lot of our staff who actually teach our students don't have that. Um, and very much bring probably more of an industry perspective because they're the they're the staff members who are still actively making stuff. Mm. They've got one foot in industry, one foot as part time teachers, um, and that makes the most sense. Like everything you, the whole story you've just told of getting to the point where you're coming in there, the PhD or the higher level degrees don't serve the purpose of giving the students. I mean, again, from my point of view, I, I've just worked and no study barely year eleven. Coming to this point where I'm employing people, I want to know that they've been trained by people that know the job. And from my point of view, the value of someone of yourself with that experience, 
I'm not concerned about whether you have a piece of paper that states you can teach. I know that with all of that experience and all of that diverse content and everything else you've produced over that time will serve so much more value to those students in learning what the job actually is, Mm. the things that you need to know and understand, but more importantly, how to communicate in the industry itself. And that's not something you can read in a book. The only way you get that is by doing it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and doing is really important. I think, you know, everyone, well, not everyone. I mean, we we recognise there are different learners. Some people, people like learning in certain ways and courses are different, but, you know, we are a very practical um, and, and I suppose our that one of the things that singles, singles us out is that we're very hands-on and there is a lot of learning by doing. Mm. So, so within that, how important within the, within the course is the collaboration and, and interlacing with industry and, and finding those opportunities for the students to see other points of view within what's actually happening out in the industry away from the university? I, I think, to me, they're, they're pretty critical. And I think, you know, most of the university, university system is shifting to recognise the importance of both industry and, you know, from a student point of view of, of trying to help build, um, I guess, what unis talk about in terms of employability. So, you know, you think of it as careers as well or professional life, which, you know, maybe back in the day, unis sometimes didn't ha- have much of an eye. You know, that idea that you might go to uni, you know, people who might have knocked a university education, it's like, well, what use is it? You know, and I think plenty of people probably did go through, uh, and and I would always argue there is value in that. I'm absolutely passionate that there is value in that kind of education, but th- the degree to which we had an idea on where students went, I say we, but the university system, you know, it's like well, you do your degree and then you go. Um, I think most universities are shifting, and some of that's driven by, you know, changes to government funding, you know. We need to know where our students go now. Mm. I'd argue that it's actually part of your duty of care to know as well. It's like it's not enough to just, you know, have the nice three years together and then you can wander off and, Mm. you know, say bye-bye. So I think that connection between students in the institution and industry are critical. And I I think, you know, we're a film school, we teach screen production, and in, in our industry I think it's different, say, if you study medicine or law, you need that degree. You absolutely need that degree. You can't go and say, I'm going to be a nurse mm. or, you know, I'll, I'll, hand, I'll, I'll represent you in court tomorrow because, <laughs> trust me, I know a bit about law and I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm practising and studying, but if you don't have the certification, the qualification, you can't do that thing. Mm. You have to be registered. Yeah, and the degree really matters there. You know, at the end of the day, in our industry, you don't need a qualification. You know, you don't have to go to film school to be a film professional. Yeah. Um, and to that end, I mean, my philosophy, and I say this to students, is I don't regard you as students. You are at the start of your career, your early career professionals. And in, in all honesty, like if you're a master's student, for instance, you might come back to do master's from industry. And would that mean that you're no longer a professional because you've stepped into student life when you, you might have worked for 20 years and come and do master's or a postgraduate? So that whole notion in our industry I don't think applies and, and my philosophy is always that, um, you know, I see us more as part of one kind of system, I suppose, and on a much more level playing field. Mm. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually attending a, a virtual conference this week for something called Students as Partners, which is a movement very much tries to shift 
the relationship at universities to on more of an equal footing, sees it much more as a collaboration. And that involves things like getting students involved in designing the work they do, you know, designing assessment, um, having a stake in decision-making, governance, the lot. Um, and I, you know, I run Live Lab. Live Lab is a, is a studio within the film school. And I suppose, you know, we offer students, I suppose, an internal internship. So you're not going out into industry, you're, but you're interning for Live Lab and we work with the outside world, mm. sometimes with industry partners in production terms as well. And, you know, that's... Um, I don't see you as a student. I see you either as an intern or a colleague. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a... Personally, I think that's how we should all regard students, you know. Um, and then how industry comes in is that, you know, industry... Industry needs these people, you know, bearing in mind that some people may not go to uni as well. So going out there, there are people who've chosen not to go to to university Mm. and who make great careers, you know, and it's not to be snooty about someone who doesn't study. I would argue strongly the the value of doing a degree um, for all sorts of reasons, you know, personal network building, chance to try things what uni can give you is a chance to fail which industry is not very tolerant of so it's a chance to try things and stuff them up and hopefully come out pretty good at the end or you know um but that's why industry is important and the connections are valuable because again the degree itself will never get you a job i don't think anyone gets hired because they've got a degree from griffith film school or from anywhere else um it can help but you know, industry always wants to know what else have you done, what else can you do, um, and it will often be those sort of um, more sort of personality-based things or get you a job, um, word of mouth, all those sorts of things, networking, and, you know, networking's recognised in the university system as a valuable tool. If you want to be a pharmacist or uh, engineer or a creative person, mm. those those no one gets a job these days in any field just by, you know, can I apply for this job? Yes, you got it. It's like there are so many other factors that come into play. Absolutely. So that connection for me between the uni, our students in industry, it's a, it's a, it, we all feed off each other might not be the best way to describe it, but, you know, we all interconnect. Mm-hmm. We all need each other. Um, and, you know, we need to keep an eye on where industry's going. I think industry needs to and does talk to us, you know, it, that has to be a dialogue. Um, and you know, and students need to make those connections with industry. So, um, you know, I think because without them, you know, you you won't build a career just with a degree. Like I said, so the students need to have made those connections with industry because that's actually how their career will start. Mm, absolutely, it'll be from doing an internship or getting a gig somewhere or someone recommending you. And you know, you do one of them, do it well. Someone will say hire this person or they'll have you back. You know, we just had a student um, do an internship. I think I think the first pro- project in Queensland that went into production was a feature film that was shooting up in Cairns by the Steve Jaggy company. Um, and one of our students managed to secure an internship in camera department. This guy wants to work in camera department. Um, he did the internship. Clearly went well because they asked him to come back and, and in a paid role on another project. Oh, great. You know, and that's, you know... The degree, I'm sure, has helped, but the degree... And this is not to not the degree. Come mm. to Griffith Film School. 
Um, you know, because it is valuable. And I think we in some ways may have helped. We often do help with those transitions and those making those yeah. connections. And, you know, we started the conversation with thinking how I was doing when I left. And I remember when I think about it more that year after uni as well, you know, I did feel a bit lost. I mean, I relocated. I went from Bristol to London and I think you don't know anyone. You know, making those connections is harder. You know, pre-internet, you know, you can't follow companies on social media um yeah you it's i'd say it's in some ways easier now mm. i think than it used to be yeah to find um, information you know it has unique it. challenges now as well but in some ways i think you can you know the way you the the, the networking the side of things that goes on online mm. is is important yeah, absolutely. And from where you started, where you had the teachers writing references for you to get into the university and then they were running production companies on the side and having those things, it's just you've modernised whatever, you know, the, the things that happened to you and put that into a into a space now where these kids have those opportunities and obviously from that student in particular, taken that step and done really well, understood what's required because he's been trained in that space and understands that it's not just about piece of paper it's all of these other things that have gone into how you got the internship and then obviously doing well and and getting the job from there which, which leads to another question with the students today um, there's obviously this massive thing around from the point of view of COVID-19 and, and all of the things we need to do is there an element of needing to find a way to build resilience into these kids so they understand the nature of where they're coming from and where they're going to and, and how would you help them find that resilient space to be able to survive and, and move forward. For sure. I think I think it's a critical part of what we do and what students need to learn, even in a pre-COVID world. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a largely freelance industry and that's – there was never a time when it wasn't – you know, you could look back at periods where there were more full-time staff at broadcasters or um, production was healthier, I don't know, but um, – there's still been a strong freelance in element to the industry. So this question of resilience has always been there. I think we're more focused on it. We talk about it a lot more. And in, in some ways it touches on questions around mental health, which, as I mentioned, is an mm. interest of mine as well. We're actually talking to, to first-year students in a couple of weeks about mental health and resilience. You know, So resilience is there You know, for a person that has no, if you like, mental health challenge at any point the question of resilience is important as well you know mm. we're an industry where we put ourselves up to get knocked down so you know that, that applies to actors but screen folk as well we're making content and we put it out to the public and people say we love it or they'll also say if they hate it yeah. so resilience is an important part of our daily jobs because we're going to get critiqued you know someone's going to tell you if they think what you're doing is bad whether that's actually on a project or when the project's done and it goes out and someone says, oh, this looks fantastic or the sound on this is beautiful, the production design was wonderful or whatever it might be. So, you know, we do lay ourselves bare in the work we do as well Mm. and it gets so resilience is important in that sense. Resilience is important from, if you like, an employability point of view as well. And I think going back to the idea as well of how much unis paid attention or cared about where students went, we do. We are shifting, and, and Griffith, I know, is actually you know really good in this area. And certainly, at the film school, we increasingly care about where our students go, uh, to the point where I think we have to have a relationship um, with our graduates as well as our students. And that's more than just a casual, you know, just 
keeping a connection, you know, and we are actively supporting graduates at the film school to do projects. Um, and um, there's a degree of mentoring that goes on. Um, and that goes to that resilience question as well. Mm. You know, that year when I left where I said, in, when I think back, I'm not sure I kept, I might have lost my mojo a bit for a while. Um, and I think that first year out is a really challenging one. For most, you know, for a, for a student that's come straight to uni from high school, you know, you get to 20 or whatever it is, you leave uni. And, and I, I say this to students, you've been a student all your life. That's been your identity. And you leave uni and you're not a student for the first time in your life. And that can be, like, in, in your head, that's a really challenging mm. point in your life, regardless of where you want to go. Um, and it's a scary place for all sorts of reasons, to do with identity, job security, friendship circle, whatever it might be. It's a big... Um, it's probably the first major junction in your life where you've mm. got real decisions... Um, and real options, you know. And so resilience becomes critical. So I think we focused on resilience a lot um, just anyway because c- it's important. And then yeah. certainly what I do in Life Lab is about getting students, I suppose, better prepared. So we give them opportunities to, to get relevant experience, put people in touch with, um, build contacts, get them out into industry uh, to make that not so much of a cliff face when they leave. Yeah. So, so we're doing that a lot anyway. I think what's happened this year, of course, is that's just ramped up. Um, and an industry that's always been about constant shifting and adapting has mm. shifted and adapted to the nth degree this year. Um, and I think we've, you know, and we as teaching staff have... We've all gone on that, you know, that journey mm. of figuring out how to do some of this stuff when you can't be close to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I like to think we've done a a good job to the extent that we, we know, we've got a lot of students who said we value how much you seem to have cared. At least, you know, even if you can't, we can't change the pandemic. We mm. we haven't been able to be face to face. So, you know, we haven't put up a wall and said, "Well, I'll just you know, go home," you know. Um, wait we, we've had to keep going of course for for obvious reasons we can't just stop the teaching so we found ways to adapt I think we're fortunate here in Queensland in that at least this trimester we are now back doing some work so um, but it's still not fully there there's a lot of stuff that we might do face to face in terms of meetings and just the casual stuff mm. that's probably not happening as it used to but, you know, we're filming productions. We're doing practical workshops. Um, and I, I feel so sorry for any students, say, in Victoria, where they've they had lockdown, they came out, had to go back, back in, in probably. So I really, my heart goes out to them. Um, but I think our students here, certainly, they've, they've had the real experience of, of pretty full lockdown. Um, and, you know, the resilience is there and to the, to the extent that I think, I mean, the rules, for instance, that we're making them, abide to our industry rules mm. we didn't make up our own you know, you know yeah. we, we looked at what screen australia and all the industry partners that it spoke to to come up with the protocols in australia for production are largely what we're basing those on mm. and they're not dissimilar t- to whatever they're doing in the u.s or europe or anywhere else um so i think you know and that is tough i mean students are struggling mm. absolutely they have struggled really struggled and I think students have struggled in a way that maybe, you know, older folk 
have not because I think they're more social animals. Um, it's not to say we all get cosy and stay at home more and don't go out, but you know, anyone who's had kids knows that that's part of being an older person yeah, with kids absolutely. and responsibilities. When you're 19 and you're single, your whole DNA is geared towards being out, socialising, yeah, even in an age of social media when you know your device is your social life as well, mm. they still, you know, it's about friendship forming. Um, and when I think back to my university experience, my three-year degree, for all the friends I carried from way back to school, the majority of my closest connection, connections are the ones I built at university in that three-year degree. Um, because there's some, something special about that particular experience. And for other people, you know, it would be the, your first gigs, you know. Um, and it does speak to that point in your life where you've stopped being a kid. You are making that transition to adult life, so you've, you've got responsibilities, you've got options, um, you've got more freedom, you know, and you're going out into the world and figuring out who you are. So separate to the study issues, but, you know, when you've got to shut down that, that's a big psychological impact that when you're in your 40s or 50s or 60s, you might be quite happy sitting at home, you know, having a cup of tea. You don't go out late anyway anymore. You know, <laughs> all those things. So I think I, particularly, and, you know, we have mature students as well, but the majority of our students, I guess, are late teens in their 20s. You know, and that's, that is tough. So the mm. resilient, you know, and, and how do you teach resilience? It's a, it's a tricky question because it's like all those soft skills you know it's not it's not like learning how a camera works or you know how to do visual effects or how premiere works it's about you know these are character based things that speak to who you are as a person and you've got to find ways to you know want to get out of bed in the morning and motivate yourself and you know which are important skills in our industry anyway mm. because you know very few of us will get up and go and clock in and do a 9 to 5 job in an office um so the degree of self-motivation is always a factor in our lives anyway. Mm. It's, it's encouraging for me from outside because obviously we have similar conversations we need to have with younger staff around those same topics. But to know that you as an educator and the program you're working within are taking that just as seriously as the physical education of the job that they're doing because it does it creates a stronger person, a person who's able to come out and deal with all of the things that are associated with the work they do. So that's just... I think from the point of view of uh, teachers and students listening to this, understanding that there are people within the mix that are concerned about not only the skill base but the well-being of the individual because for us as an industry, you want someone to come out and be successful. We want someone to come to us and be successful. And a massive part of that education, and maybe wasn't for some of our employers when we were younger because uh, we at point I know I was used as a consumable, not as an asset for a business... But knowing that those things are there, hopefully what it does is it means people understand that we are actually there to support them. The more they put in, the more we'll give them. There's a, a nice open dialogue. And as you said before, it's about being a colleague from that point and, and building that understanding and that resilience as they move out beyond what we can do for them and off into the future. Mm. So from the point of view of, of, of dealing with that, uh, no podcast would be complete without a, a, without a top three. Uh, so as an educator and obviously from where you've come within your industry, what do you see as three really important elements for a student to focus on as they're leaving you and moving out into the industry itself? Uh, yeah, and that, that's a, it's a tough question. 
If I can count it as one thing, I'd say the soft skills thing is, is for me perhaps the, one of the most, if not the most important. And I, I guess that goes, again, that's not changed really. That's always been the case. Um, so if you count soft skills, so you know, your ability to communicate, your ability to fit in, you know, can you take feedback? It's about, you know, if you go in to do an internship, again, being that person that does the right thing, you know, who is liked, you know, life is too short to work with people who are you don't like, basically. So however skilled you may be in, in your particular areas, um, don't go in and be a person that people don't like. So, you know, make yourself useful. You know, try and find solutions to problems where you see them. Um, volunteer for things. Put your hand up and say yes. Um, get noticed. Um, I, I was, there was one thing I was going to mention. I, I ha- had an experience when I was starting out, when I was working at ITN, um, about a year or so in the Gulf War happened, the first Gulf War, and ITN went what they called open-ended. So this was an era where I think CNN had just started, but the UK had no 24-hour news. Australia wouldn't then. And, you know, the Gulf War happened. We went on air, and it was scary. It's like, we're going to go on air, and we don't know when we're coming off. And there was no floor manager available. And, you know, I was a runner, and I said, we need someone to floor manager. And I said, I can, I, I'd been a floor manager at uni, and I floor managed... And that really got me noticed. Um, so step in, take a challenge, take a risk, do something that's a bit scary maybe. That really helped me. So, yeah, and I hear employers now say, you know, we, we've had interns who come in and we can see them on their phone or they kind of wait to be told what to do or they don't, you know, um, like an, an intern will say to the boss, who are you? <laughs> it's like, you know, do your homework, know who you're working for, be engaged, mm. you know. And I guess then the second thing, probably so soft skills, for, if they can be one, one thing, soft skills, which is broad. But um, I guess also be someone kind of who cares. Um, what does that mean? For me, it's about um, like the idea, of, the idea of doing something well. Like, you know, when I think back to when I started, I'm sure it would have been my mum or other people would have said, if you're going to do a job, do it well doesn't matter what it is. Mm. So if you're the runner, be the best runner. Um, and I guess caring about doing good work. So, you know, whether that's making content that actually changes the world and content can still change the world or it's just good, fun entertainment, whatever it is you do, do it well. Don't be half-assed about things. Mm. Uh, if you get up in the morning, the work you want to do, do it absolutely to the best it can be done. Um, so, like, you know, care about stuff, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the third, I guess, is always remember, and, and it touches on resilience, but we are, we are living in a, you know, we always feel like we're living in an age where technology is ahead of us or, you know, you have to keep pace. You know, when I started at ITN, um, you know, it wasn't long that people had been transitioning from 16 millimeter. So it was the era of tape. You know, I came in at a point where um, beta SP was the standard format. They'd been moving from, you know, uh, Umatic BVU, sort of three-quarter inch tape, which was pretty ropey. Um, still at times working in two-inch for mastering things. And it was this weird, you know, that felt like, oh, this thing, Beta SP, this new, incredible, look at the quality of this tape, it's fantastic. <laughs> you know, and in my time then, you know, I had colleagues working on the first um, sort of docos on Avid. This is, this is not, you know... New technology, you don't have to have tapes, you don't have to, oh wow, you can move stuff around. It's like, 
it transformed. We forget how that transformed production, mm. non-linear editing. What a change it was. Um, and students, of course, now work with this incredible suite of interconnected technologies and softwares that allow them to do so much, even with their phone, but in a post-production suite. Um, so, yeah, I think that third thing would be an awareness of how technology both drives what we do, but we can you know, implement and we need to be across it. So no one, no one can sit still anymore, no. if they ever could. But I think that they... And, and we say this because multi-skilling to me is important to students, and I guess that's one thing that's allied to that. I say to students, you know, don't... You can't afford to just be one thing, which is not to say you can't be a master of or a mistress of one area. Mm. So it's not jack of... Master of one, jack of none, or whatever that phrase is. Um, you know, I would say to students, multi-skilling is important, which is not to dilute skills, um, which I know has often been in the past a concern about that sort of philosophy. But, you know, someone will hire you or have you as an intern to do something, like runner. Again, could you floor manage? Or, mm. you know, can you do a bit of editing? You know, can you shoot an interview with someone? Can you... So, yeah, that's a, that's a vital thing for me because you can't just go out and say, well, I'm just going to be the soundie. That's all I'll be. And you know, some, there are careers and still people build careers, particularly in those craft areas. That, that's more viable. But particularly, I mean, producer, director, writers, you know, mm. no one hires someone out of uni probably just as a director no. or as a writer. So what else are you doing as you build that career? Um, so ability to do other things. Um, you know, and, and everyone, this is why you come to uni, you, you learn all those things. Mm. Uh, and that's harder to do, potentially. So we give you the opportunity to learn everything. So it's a good grounding. Mm. It, it makes a lot of sense, you know, the ability to take the blinkers off and have an understanding of what's going on around you. Because even if you're in a specialist space, there's still a story to be told about understanding what person A, B and C are doing on the floor, on the set. So you get to know that, you know, it takes them this long to do that thing. They need you know, that much information in order to deliver properly. So, again, the more input you have, and, again, you might find during that process, especially as a student, that all of a sudden that opens a door that you didn't know existed to something that you really engage with. Mm. Um, so, yeah, those sorts of things are, are and super You know, important. I come from a producing background, and, and it's always a sort of challenge to get students to embrace producing because students can often see producing as, the, as, a, as a more, what's the word, you know, as not particularly creative role or as largely form-filling and scheduling and stuff like that. And, and all those things are critical to making projects work well. Mm. But, um, you know, producers need to know, in a sense, what everyone does to be able to treat those people properly, fairly, understand how the project's going to be most effectively delivered. Mm. Yeah, so it's really important, even if you're not, you know, you may not, you don't have to be a great cinematographer. You've got to understand what that department does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Don't get in the way of the group. Yeah, and learn, you know, and, and, and going, you know, so that point about how there are restrictive practices, mm. but respect what other people do. Absolutely. I mean, David Putnam, who, who I mentioned before and does do some teaching at the school, is really good on this. He says, and I'm, I'm thinking of my, my teacher who, who kind of didn't make me realise, but got me to the point where I realised I probably wasn't quite a good enough to actor to really cut it as an actor, as a living um, you know, he will say, look at, look at the skill that your, your, your colleague has, the person next to you has. 
and and you, when you build teams it's about recognizing other people's expertise as well as your own mm. and recognizing where the, those people help you and help a project so you can absolutely you know you may be able to do a range of things but if there's someone else who can do it better you're better off working with them absolutely that makes the and, and that's what I've done. I'm good at the thing I do, but I'm surrounded by some amazingly talented people who design and build and operate things that I could not be in the position I'm in now if I hadn't have been smart enough to shut my mouth and pay attention to all of those people. Mm. And now I come to work every day and see all the amazing things that they do. And, yeah, look, it's great for me at the end of the day, but it's wonderful that you're able to recognise and understand how important all of those other people are around yeah, you to get to absolutely. the end. Yeah. So... We're sort of coming to the end, and this is a question that uh, I know we, we had a chat about prior. Um, so it's sort of crystal ball time. It's been a really strange year with COVID-19 and everything else, and our industry and the wider industry has obviously taken some massive hits for the nature of uh, how we may be able to work, uh, what we can do, what we can't do, which is basically at the moment just about everything. But there are still obviously a huge amount of people taking in the content that we create. You know, everyone's at home watching Netflix, watching movies, watching uh, recorded theatre shows. So for the nature of what's happening now, where do you see us going over the next five or ten years? It, and it's, it's a really understandable question and an important question. I think, um, you know, we have changed already, so this, that change has happened. It's not, will it happen? It's happened, and we're, we're dealing with it. I think the question is going to be for how long. Um, you know, World Health Organization this week saying maybe as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a planet, we can contain this thing in a couple of years, perhaps. You know, that's, that's not saying we will. We can, possibly. So that's a two-year time frame, you know. And I, if you think back to the Spanish flu, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020, the world lost 50 million people or whatever it was. At some point, they, that generation came through it. So by the mid-20s, it was the flap. We think of that as a, as, a, as a golden decade of flappers and speakeasies and, you know, jazz and whatever it was. You know, the tw- 20s was a, was a decade we think of as an up decade between two pretty horrendous decades, forgetting that it started with a pandemic that killed 50 million people. Mm. So that's not to say history will repeat, but probably we know at some point we will come out to the point where there's a degree of normality. Everyone talks about the new normal, meaning the new normal is not in fact normal, it's still not normal. Mm. So the question is, will we get to the point where it is normal as we remember it being? And I think, you know, I couldn't say that will happen, but, but, you know, science tells us that probably coronavirus will be with us, it won't go we won't eradicate it. So it's the degree to which we live with that. And so much of that hangs on things that are out of our, you know, everyday control, yeah, the vaccine, the drug. So if you get it, can you survive, you know? Um, but I think we will move to degrees of normality. You know, we're in there now. We're in that transition phase. You know, however bad things are currently in Victoria, you know, until sort of yesterday or the day before, they were still shooting the... Um, what's the show, The Masked Singer, or the, yeah, you yeah. know, so they were still in production in, in, in the height of a lockdown in Victoria. Now, they had to shut because of an instance, but I think what the pandemic has showed us is that the need for the thing that our industry produces is critical to normal life. You know, people can't survive a pandemic without, you know, stuff to watch or listen to. 
Um, so there's a if if ever we doubted the value of the work we produce, the pandemic has showed us that value. So you know we will make stuff. We will continue to make stuff. Um, you know the conditions that everyone's working in. So our students are working in the same conditions as industry. So having to apply social distancing, staggered times, wearing masks. You know adjusting the content to keep people and cast and talent apart, and all those sorts of things. Uh, we're doing it, you know, and and we will continue doing that because we it's what we do, and we just have to adapt. And there are cost implications, and it's more of a faff, but you know we do it because. The alternative is not doing it, and you know we want to make it. People want to make it, and we know people want to watch it. So we've got to keep going because you know there's only so many reruns of old shows you can watch <laughs> because we need we have an appetite. We have a huge appetite for fresh content. Mm. Um, so I think that's the that's a positive thing for sure. We will you know we will do stuff. So five years from now, I'd like to think in five years, largely we will look back to that. Oh, it wasn't 2020, 2021 pretty shocking you know mm. um and uh, yeah it's a ch- i think those going through the, the, those that are making the transition into the industry whether it's in a educational context or just not just trying to build their careers you know they are the ones that will find this the hardest because the kind of building blocks you 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 chalk up at that point are harder for them to be to be building, mm. you know. So those relationships, those networks, you know, they're still happening, but it's, it is harder. Mm. Um, like you know, I, I do spend a lot of time getting students and supporting students in going into industry. A lot of industry is shut up, and even if they're back now, you know, interns are low on their priority because they're focusing on core personnel only. Yeah. So internships have gone. So. They will come back. They are coming back already. We know it. I've got students out doing amazing things currently, um, still, um, uh, and, and I think that will get easier. Mm. It's, um, we will we will find ways to to adapt and and some of the things that we're, we've adjusted to face masks. You know, as of this this week, we're meant to wear face masks in Queensland. I was on a shoot three weeks ago where we wore masks. We just did it. Mm. Students did it. It's you know. Just a uh, smart way of approaching yeah. and it. And if you're doing that on a professional set, that's no, you know, you know that's what the industry requires. Yeah. Um, and the industry does it for good reason because we, you know, without it we probably can't do those things. Yeah. So it's just a... We'll take any precautions required because at the end of the day we were the, the first affected and understand that we need to do whatever we can to get back. Yeah. That's fantastic. Look, thank you very much for your time today, no Richard. That's been fantastic. I've learned so much more <laughs> about it. But also to just the nature of the approaches that Griffith Film School are taking towards the students and building resilience and giving them those opportunities is such an, uh, an amazing thing. And I think uh, a lesson for teachers of all levels all the way through that, you know, pointing kids, whether it's in the traditional performance roles or into technical or whatever it might be, building in that resilience and building in that understanding, that the connection to industry and the, the soft values you were talking about before are so important to be part of that learning process just as it is the skill base itself so thank you very much for your time today you're very welcome thank you very much for having me not a problem at all